0: At the beginning of the Russian invasion here in Ukraine on February 24th, Western analysts weren't completely confident that Ukraine would be able to hold off the Russian occupiers from taking over the country. Of course, now we know Russia failed in its military objectives to occupy Ukraine because they could not overcome the stiff Ukrainian military resistance along with the Western military aid that accompanied it. Andrei Kononenko, my good buddy, had no doubts from the start of the invasion what the outcome would be. I'm sure you remember Andrei from our many television appearances at the beginning of the war. Andrei is a linguist by trade and co-owns a language school here in Kyiv. But when the invasion started, he decided to take up arms and join a territorial defense unit. along with tens of thousands of other people here in Ukraine. While many analysts were bracing for Ukraine's fall, here's what Andre had to say during our interview with CNN a day after the
1: invasion began. They can, let's just fantasize, achieve their short-term goals here. They can, but with their long-term goals, they, they're not going to survive here. They, they're, not, they're just not welcome here in any household. He's going to fight against them. It's just not happening in a long-term perspective. Maybe for short-term things, but not for long-term. We're not going to give you
0: print Seven months later, Andrei's predictions turned out to be true. Much of the territory Russia occupied in the east at the start of the war has since been liberated by Ukraine. Ukraine is still under Russian occupation in the Kherson region in the south, where Andrei is from. His parents are still there, waiting for Ukraine to liberate that part of the country. As for his wife and three children, they're in the United States now. But the nation, as a whole, is still very much under Ukrainian control. Vladimir Putin's military objectives to replace the government here in Kyiv have failed. On this episode of Black Diplomats, I sit down with Andre to talk about what it means to have your life disrupted by a Russian invasion and to reflect back on our time together during the early days of the war, helping refugees flee the country as well as talk about some of our close calls ducking Russian military attacks.
1: Uh, It was um, just as you were talking about it. um, uh, It again became so overwhelming to to go back in my memories to those initial days and um, explosions, you meant. And if you remember, next morning after, on the second day, uh, a missile fell on our block, killing people, uh, sleeping at four o'clock in the morning, changing someone's lives forever and probably changing our lives forever because war is something that is always inconceivable. And when you see something incredible, something like your eyes cannot believe, your ears cannot, your heart doesn't accept, it changes you. And I went through went through so many changes that Initial days, initial weeks. So if I can start telling you all about it, it'd be a long story. I never thought that my parents would be in occupation. I'd be like cut off from them. I cannot go visit them. And they cannot get out of there. And just to aggravate my story, my family, my wife, and my three children are now finding a refuge in the... Wonderful country, the United States of America, and I could, and I could go with them, be with them right now, in uh, in the safety, and continue going, you know, raising my children. I cannot leave my parents behind, and I am far, far, far more useful being here in Ukraine, doing what I do, and you know what I do, and. Just this morning, um, the person I'm sponsoring, a soldier, a fighter, um, since 2015, because the war started in 2014, really. This is what we say in Ukraine, the war started in 2014. This is just the second phase. He wrote to me after I sent, shipped him another portion of aid. Like power generator, you know, about thank you so much for contributing to it as well. That this is the way I kill the enemy is helping our soldiers. He just wrote me, You don't believe how many bad guys you just erased by making our lives there, you know, on the line of duty so much, so much easier those days changed uh, me forever i decided to join the the defense unit the territorial defense unit that day when the rocket fell and that that day i went to the conscription office together with you um i was you know i lost sight of you and i was so terrified (laughs) you cannot you could not go in so you went around to do your you, your, your journalist work uh, <laughs> outside of you. Those were the days where the danger was in the air, the tension was in the air, causing like, you know, electricity was in the air, that you can almost drink this electricity off the air. And when I got to the conscription office, it was overfull with people. It was just so many people. I was going, finding someone who works there, like, hey, what do I do? Where do I go to sign up? It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go there, go here, go there. And all these hundreds and hundreds of people. (laughs) Then I heard the reports that the defense units or TDUs, territorial defense units were in Kiev, were overcrowded by, you know, 220%. So basically that meant that all male capable population uh, came to sign up and be formed into units and sent to the front or assigned to certain neighborhoods to patrol the streets. So I went to patrol the northern direction from Kiev towards Chernihiv. Just outside Kiev on the entrance to the city of Brovary and so with some volunteers just like myself and you spend every minute with me on that duty drinking that electricity, bro.
0: The lead up to February the twenty-fourth, all of my friends at home said, Are you gonna leave? and I hadn't had not, no intention of leaving because I could not leave people behind. I'm not any fighter. I wasn't going to do anything, but I, at least I wanted to document what was happening. But those first few days were really traumatic. And I think we have to recognize as traumatic because it's not healthy to be under an invasion. It's a terrible experience and no one should ever experience it. You had an option to leave, but you decided to stay and what is it like picking up an automatic weapon that's an instantaneous decision that you have to make and it's rough and I was there with you and I saw you putting on your stuff and then I got into a correspondent uh, mindset that okay I'm going to document this so it's me and Andre and so we were the perfect team
1: well, that was the time, that was a moment that you really had to think fast and move fast. The enemy was approaching, was was actually a surrounding the city from mostly two directions, from, well, west, northwest and north. And this is where we were in the north of town. Uh, to pick up a gun that the government distributed to you was an indicator that things are getting very serious, that the government did not really care who they distributing these guns. Well, of course, we gave our IDs and everything in return for the gun, and um, I duly already uh, returned it to to back to the government. But... The uh, the uh, uh, the number is twenty thousand uh, Kalashinkos were distributed in the first day, and territorial defense units were formed within hours, and every every block in the city turned into a fortress with um, sacks of sands, with uh, platoons, with guys dressed. Ragtag military clothes and, uh, yeah, stopping cars, checking documents, um, you know, and, uh, people were leaving in masses through uh, safe directions to south, uh, going south and then further west. Um, uh, and I remember those interviews we did in the first or second day, you know, um, uh, there was not a, tinge of doubt that uh, we're going to kick ass in this war when you see so many people enthusiastically selflessly taking up the guns and using them for the purpose what a great referendum for the government by the way what a great plebiscite for that, you know, like he, the president gives out all the guns, you know, and just go ahead and turn against him. No, everybody was. And, uh, you know, and that was the interview with um, one of the largest TV channels that you were on and I was near and uh, they want to talk to me. <laughs> and I remember the host were, was smiling kind of uh, sarcastically in disbelief um admiring my faith in my country and in the victory that we're going to soon have, um, he did not believe in that. <laughs> he was on the other side and, uh, yeah, not a tinge of doubt. We're going to win, not a tinge of doubt. That's, and, and, and to make sure to secure your victory for your country. It's you personally, it's you personally that you have to act. You have to act now. You don't sit back at home and like, okay, we're going to win. I'm going to win. We're going to win. I grab a gun and we're going to win. And when I saw these thousands of people uh, forming in a very organized manner, fortresses all across town, of course, there's no doubt. I don't know what what those guys were thinking. And, of course, they lost the battle for Kiev and lost a lot of people. Later, I would go, um, when Bucha was liberated, uh, right the next day I was there and uh, I saw the horror of the battle for Kiev on the other end of town for me. I was even more confirmed in my faith that we're going to kick ass. We're going to kick this one going.
0: No one knew the capabilities of the Ukrainian military and how they would stand up against Russia because what Ukraine is doing is history-making because Russia was supposed to be the second most powerful military on earth. And what we're seeing is that you stand up to them, you keep fighting, there will be losses, but you can beat them. You always ask yourself for what what did I do what what happened that we deserved to be in this situation?
1: yeah, anything could happen to us. The air was full of um explosive that smell that the powder the the heat that was hanging in the in the winter air it was really really hot outside for a few minutes and the, the first thing was like Is there any wounded? And we went, but the the, the guys picked up the wounded and everybody who was hurt real, real quick and put them in the cars and off they rushed. And uh, next thing they sent us to the mayor's office of that little town north of Kiev and to report and they said that we uh, we can go home for a few days to wait for the further instructions because we are under stress. I didn't really feel like I was under stress until like a few days later I realized that actually I was. You you can never tell that you're under stress. You experience like PTSD, like sy- symptoms and, you know, stuff. I think we
0: both had it. We, we both had it. <laughs>
1: you know what I mean? You know, a couple, a couple of, uh, you know, uh, incidents that I'm not exactly proud of myself. I don't experience nervous breakdowns too often. Like I experienced them uh, those days after the explosions. And it was definitely the causes of that. Uh and of course, losing sleep and
0: but it's okay anxiety. To talk about it, yeah, I mean, like we it's, we, yeah. Didn't, we both had breakdowns. It yeah, just, it looked we both did.
1: We both did, yeah. and it looked weird. And and now I know how how it. I know how it feels. Now I, I exactly know how it feels, and it helped me to help other people that felt similar things when they went through something similar, or like, you know. Uh, especially uh, women with children that uh, hear an explosions near the house, um, that fear cannot really be described. You just want to grab that woman with the children and 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 take it as 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 much farther away from the from the from that situation as as possible. Well, this is exactly what we're doing. Well, this is exactly what we're doing, and. That, Talk about that first family. Yeah, yeah that see. first family. That you know, they, they, they. Okay, on that night of the explosion, they sent us home to kind of regroup and take a break. I was like, oh, I'm okay. I don't need a break. I, I, I'm, am I'm, 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 yeah. I still can be used. <laughs> I still can be useful. I can still whatever. I, I'm, I'm up for every, anything. And the you know calls came to you know maybe I can help. Since I have a car, I can help to take a, uh, a mother with two uh, siblings and an auntie, you know, away to perhaps the, um, you know, the borderline with uh, Slovakia. And um, I said, sure, whatever, 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 you know, whatever I can do that is useful. So um, these women were scared. These women were scared. I went to pick them up. To the north, even more northern. Tell
0: them where um, they were,
1: you know, like- yeah, they were in it, and they were sitting in the cellar and praying like three or four nights, without really getting outside and hearing all the explosions going around. And the enemy was approaching. It was like thirty kilometers away.
0: Where were they?
1: Oh, that was a village, even to the north of Brovary. Brovary, which is to the north of Kiev, and they were fifty clicks to the north from Brovary. So I had to really, really rush to get them out of there because the enemy was approaching on the highway that leads, that connects Chernihiv. It was already surrounded, uh, and the tanks were moving right on the highway village by village, and they were in approach. Uh, so I fetched them, and I went to my apartment back to Kiev with them to give them hot tea, some food and yeah yeah, you were there all the time and in the apartment and i needed to change my military clothes into civilian clothes so that just in case we're captured or you know they you know i'm not endangering anyone uh in the car um and i remember this little situation if i can talk about it when i was ready to go we were finally outside getting in the car like in an hour, uh, getting in the car, I noticed that I, I, I'm I, still having my military boots on me. I, was like, just, I didn't pay attention to what I was putting on. I was like, oh, no, I need to go back. I need to go back and change it. So these ladies, and, I, and I'm telling them, hey, can you wait for two minutes? I go back and change it. And they, they scream and cry, like, don't leave us here alone. Oh my God! I I saw the fear in their eyes. We were in complete kind of safety in in the middle of town. I just needed a minute to change the shoes, and they're like, "Don't leave us!" And they went along with me, like you know, like ducklings, and 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 we I went to change my shoes, and I and I slowly, slowly started to realize how serious things are, how these women. Are really, really scared.
0: As many of you all know, Andre and I spent the first days of the war helping refugees leave the country. Keep in mind that at first, I was embedded with Andre in his territorial defense unit. But Andre decided that his skills were best suited helping people leave the country instead of holding a gun at a checkpoint. Someone called him and asked if he could drive this one particular family to safety and he agreed. So since Andre and I are sidekicks and I was always on the hunt for new and interesting stories, I came along. The first family we helped was from a small suburb of Kyiv that was in danger of being occupied by Russian troops. Yulia, her two twin daughters, Polina and Milana, and Yulia's aunt Svetlana were hiding inside of a shelter for three days, avoiding explosions around them and did not emerge until Andre arrived to pick them up. Yulia's husband could not leave the country with them because he was a man and had to stay in case Ukraine called on him to fight. One main thing that Andre noticed when he picked his family up was that they were extremely traumatized and didn't want to be separated from him. As he describes it, they were following him around like ducks. I was waiting at Andre's apartment and as soon as they uh, arrived and they walked through the door and saw me, they attached themselves on to me as often as they attached themselves on to Andre they never got the sense that they were out of danger in their suburb. It looked as if the danger that they were feeling and that they were hiding away from was following them. And it was difficult to convince them that they were much safer with us than they were in that suburb that they were in and in that shelter they were hiding from. I had already uh, connected with an aid worker based in Slovakia who was waiting to take care of this family as soon as we crossed from the Ukrainian border town of Uzhhorod into Slovakia. That trip took us nearly four days and was full of dangerous stops. And This family was looking to us for safety, but honestly, us as their protectors, Andre and I, were in as much danger and unpredictability as they were the fear on their faces throughout that trip felt heavy as if it was an extra weight on my shoulders and around my waist they were frightened and i was responsible for making them feel secure at least that's how it felt the intensity of being around them and it wasn't that they were purposefully doing so the fear was so intense that you wore it like a garment and it felt like a heavy garment. And this all made me feel anxious because I saw in their eyes that they were looking to me for security that neither Andre nor I could really guarantee. The family is safe in London now, but getting them there was certainly a ride.
1: If you were to imagine a over three million, see three million population. The city of Kiev is over three million, and um, people are leaving. Uh, families are leaving, and uh, this is the, lo- the 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 line of cars, where hundreds hundreds of kilometers, and the cars bumper to bumper moving towards the border that's the the trip usually takes day takes uh one day it took us four days just because we couldn't really move very well uh, we just barely moved along the road and uh, there were no no absolutely no fuel to put in the car um i um, had extra two canisters that eventually helped us um, but other than that we wouldn't be able to if not that we wouldn't be able to to get where we were going and uh, I remember when we were you know the, the, the situation with fuel is such you know you if you see anything and if you still have eating your tank you better fill it up even if it's half a gallon you still have to stop and I remember this situation we stopped at the fuel station that seemed to be open and they just shut down on us. Uh because people on the gas station were probably also scared and wanted to go home and they were it was close to very not not yet but very close to curfew hour and they shut down right on us and we really needed really needed that gas.
0: You have a clear mind now.
1: Yeah, I have a <laughs> I, I, And, you know, I, I thought I had a clear mind back then. <laughs> this is how I found out that we are all under great stress.
0: The next part of this conversation deals with Andre and his parents, who are currently living under occupation in the Hirson region in a... Mid sized town not too far away from the uh, Herson, uh city uh, capital of the, of the region. And one of the reasons why Andre is still in Ukraine is because he did not want to leave his family in this country by himself, his mother and father. Andre's family is safe in the United States, his wife and three children actually Andre could leave Ukraine if he wanted to because he has two children that are under the age of 14. There are some exceptions for men to leave in certain circumstances and that includes having young children under a certain age. So if Andre wanted to leave he could but he doesn't want to because his family is still in the Hirsan region in his hometown I'm not naming the town because I don't want to give off where it is and security reasons, but What's really frustrating about this For him is that there are moments in time. To- there are times where he really cannot talk to him at all because under russian occupation they make many of the residents take russian sim cards obviously to spy on them and so the andre's parents have to sneak and figure out ways to contact him without alarming the russian occupiers why don't his parents leave you ask because they grew up there their whole life and as far as they're concerned they'll die there and for andre he respects that and he is staying here in ukraine constantly figuring out ways that he can help because his business that he co-owns nova a language school that i currently attend has lost major contracts from western Um, Western institutions where they would ordinarily send their students here but they're not doing so because of the war but it's a very touchy conversation to have with Andre because of this psychological toll that is taken on him not being able to help his family because the Ukrainian army has yet to liberate this part of the uh, country which is in the south And getting a hold of Kherson would not only liberate this region, but it would be a strategic advantage for Ukrainians to launch another counteroffensive into Crimea. So while everyone was rejoicing and happy about the counteroffensive in the east, particularly in the Kharkiv region. And some successes in Donbass. The. The gains of trying to retake the South are going much slower. And many anticipate that it's going to take a few more months for. Here's which is in the South to be liberated. And so with that liberation will come the freedom of Andre's parents. And we spent. This time of the interview to talk about that and what it means for him.
1: Well, that's um, that's another uh, something that I live with. It's a daily torture for me to not being able to go and visit my parents, who are senior people now. My dad is seventy nine. My mom is seventy five, seventy four, and. It's a small 20,000 people population, little resort town that gets by by summer vacationing tourists that bring in some income. And I have a little restaurant there. um, And I enjoy spending time there. And I have three children. And this is the best place for them to go and spend their summertime with my parents, being near with the grandparents is essential to me as a part of the, you know, generational cycle. Uh, It's very important so that my children spend as much time with my parents as possible, with my wife's parents as possible, as much as possible. And I love that place. I was born there, I was raised there. I thought I was tremendously lucky to have been born then born there and I, I picked up my first job was there in the sea. I was a sailor. I was a merchant mariner for a while. Well, that's another story. So I'm very I'm I'm very fond of my little town. It's um there's everything you need for your living. And uh somewhere in um back of my mind I, I really thought that I would probably spend my final years here as well in Skadovsk in the south of Kherson on the Black Sea coast. The enemy approached quickly and took Kherson and cut off the all the routes to the left bank Ukraine there in Kherson and Kherson Oblast and that meant that my hometown was was cut off Uh, in a few days the Russians came in rolling and uh, my parents were there. They, um, you know, they are elderly, cons- very conservative people. Uh, I could get them out of there, technically, but uh, my parents did, didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave the place. They, they've they been together there all their lives and never left that place. And so you know what it's like, you know, for these people. They, It's just a the place they live. They're attached to their house, to their daily routine life they are comfortable with. And for me that meant daily torture by you know there were many many days there's there was no internet, no cell phone connection and I had no idea what was going on and my dad is diabetic he needs he needs medicine and my mom is not healthy exactly at her age as well. My friends got stuck and they were determined uh, to help my parents, so I felt fine. But then day after day, they started to grab people, the The Russians, the uh, Russian police started to grab people. All my friends were through the torturing uh, sessions in the cellar uh, somewhere just outside town. All of them. Uh, I lost three of my great friends from high school. They were killed, found dead, and it was all happening all around my parents. They had no place to go for help, and I was not there to help them, and still not there to help them. Now, most of the population of the town left, this is totally, ghost. it's a ghost town, it's a like 70% of people left. There's no stores that are open. There are, there are no drug stores. There's no doctors. And that's why I'm here to be able to to be with them on the first day when I possibly can and praying every day to that armed forces of Ukraine move and liberate left bank. Of Kherson, the right bank is still. I'm talking about the bank of the Dnieper River that divides Kherson almost into left bank and right. So Kherson is located on the right bank and it's still under pressure of the Ukrainian armed forces and the situation looks good for us, very promising. And the, but the left bank may take a lot more time. It's so I cannot be with my family, with my children, to be a dad uh, and um, probably be also useful while in the States for the Aquarian military because it looks like I'm very successful in providing aid to the guys on the line of duty. And you know, with my over fifty age, I'm not exactly maybe a better fighter, maybe I'm a better provider than a fighter. That's that's my position for now. If I stop being a provider, maybe I should probably change my mission into more like a fighting mission. But that,
0: that's difficult, man. That's,
1: that, that's difficult. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm with Catch-22, Perfect Catch-22. And uh, now when there's um internet connection, they brought in the, the switch into the switch to, to the Russian internet, and they, they can call me now. I called my mom today uh we just check on and uh and my dad um, you know uh, if you follow the news uh, to connect the banks of the river there's a bridge to Kherson and that's the bridge we use all the time to move around uh that bridge is bombed and uh my dad's doctors in Kherson can only be reached if you take a boat from this town called Holapristan to Kherson, which is an hour by water. Oh, uh, that's how badly we separated by by the river, actually three rivers uh, that flow together, forming a huge water reserve there. And uh, so he went there by a boat, and uh, when uh, Ukrainian troops approached, it was not safe. To get back by a boat because explosions going on the water, and the Russians are getting more and more aggressive. They can just stop shooting in any boat, and they stop ferrying people. And after two weeks in the hospital, my dad needed to go back and he couldn't. He got stuck in Kherson. There are lots of, he's very well known in Kherson, it's a half million population. He's very well known there for what he has been doing in his life and um lots of friends so he they so that's okay i mean they they provided everything for him and until this conversation today, my mom tell that my dad finally got back home after so many days of not being able. And, you know, my dad by himself in Kherson and my mom by herself in Skadovsk. Not exactly a situation I'm looking for. And they, people that are still in love and they really cling on each other. And that was difficult. He found some um, independent farrier, like a small fisherman boat, and they took him down there, you know, hiding in between the uh, islands hiding in between the islands and he finally was able to be picked up on the other side of the river down the stream in Hola Priston so they got reunited finally after 3 weeks being apart oh uh, so i hope that sends you a little bit of um sensation what i'm going through so it's a big relief and uh, on the phone we don't talk about The nearest liberation, we just pray and we just check on each other. We are okay. Um, My kids are great at calling them on, you know, on messenger because the cell phone connection doesn't work there at all.
0: How psychologically do you take care of yourself to handle all of this stress?
1: I try to pretend to myself i'm not under stress oh uh, you know by looking at other people looking at the reports um i'm not bad i shouldn't be bad but i know it's not so i try to be with friends as much as possible uh that's partially i'm here uh spending time with you a couple of days in this wonderful place oh uh, Recuperating and regrouping myself, trying to get my thoughts together, thinking about my next steps. Thinking about the future actually helps a lot. Thinking about my next steps, what I should do, what I probably shouldn't do as well. Planning out. It all happens in my head. I'm always talking to myself in terms of what I must do now, what I must do now. And connecting to the people on the, on the line of duty there, on the front line, is also helping a lot. I have guys who also have children, very small children, and they are in their 30s, in their 40s, and they are capable of moving quickly with weapon system. So that helps a lot, being useful. Try to be useful, try to be on the outlook for future, thinking about the future helps a lot and also working doing a meaningful work doing meaningful work like um uh like collecting aid like uh going on um connecting with people asking for stuff like uh, i'm looking for ipads now i'm looking for Uh, opportunities to buy a drone and that's you know that occupies my mind in a very very constructive way so and and because i've done so much of it already and i've seen that that helped them a lot like today uh alexander calls me and says you don't even know how many enemies you already killed by helping us out and that was kind of relief was like Wow, that's a great! I don't need to go to psychiatrist. <laughs> this is what I want to do. This is what I want to hear. This is what keeps me going, 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 and going. So, business is down these days, but and not down completely. You know, with my imagination, of uh, you know how to procure with my um, ability to. You know, to procure things to and with my connections in 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 the country that that you know that helps me to get all these expensive things up to the boys at the front of duty. And I feel that I'm very, very useful at the moment, and uh, my mind is rushing again on you know, just simple things like we did um, but well, we always did in a, in the spring and the summer. Just go to supermarket, get the packages uh, of food, like bread, oils, like um canned meat, and you go to bucha and distribute among people because they're still hungry there. You know, they're left without ele- another no electricity, ties cut all. They still don't have stores going to buy stuff, and people don't have money. Then and you distribute food and uh, they see people happy. You're like, oh my god, I'm I'm helpful, I'm useful, and. One of the guys on TV, I want to say the president, I'm like not sure, said that everybody must help with their own capacity. Every Everybody must do everything in their own capacity to do things. This is how we're fighting. This is how we're winning. If just everybody does something useful within their capacity, whatever you can do. This is how we fight these puzzles, you know. Make up a kaleidoscope of
0: victory. So you co-run a language school. So what? Is, what is it like? So so what? So so what is it like to be a a business owner and you depend on a lot of Americans to come to your school to learn Ukrainian and Russian and Georgian and all these other things. And a war interrupts that. So how has this affect, affected you as a businessman?
1: Uh, Business-wise, uh, you're also trying to use your imagination how to keep things going because I have staff members, and staff members are either either they have families or they're part of the families. They're important staff members so it's important to find a way uh, for business to go because uh, um, uh, the uh, nature of my school is such that we teach ukrainian uh, and russian languages as second languages and people come specifically to us to kiev and now of course nobody can come so Online is an option, but it's not the greatest option, and another way of doing it is taking the school out to some place outside the country. So in the summertime, we managed to organize courses uh, in Georgia and uh, on the Black Sea Coast in Batumi, and that worked a little bit. But of course not to the scale of business that we used to have, of course not. And. Uh, we're not doing great as a as a as a as a school at the moment, but I'm not really were overly worried about it. There's something that doesn't really worry me. Uh, there are a lot more other worries that uh, you know. This is a situation I cannot change. This is external risk I cannot hedge against. This is something that you know I just have to agree. This is happening and. For now, I have to put everything on pause. And if I have to, so far we're going good um, uh, with uh, salaries and wages being paid and lessons being distributed online. But if that have to stop for a while, it will stop for a while because I believe that we're winning and I believe we will win and life will be back. And guess what? We will rebuild, we will restore, and we will have a better life, a much better life. And those guys will remain in their swamp.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of black diplomats podcast please go to itunes and give us a five-star rating and leave us a great review also the black diplomats website is being updated and redesigned so look out for the new look in a month or so we're also working on monetizing the podcast to make it easier for you to support our work those details will be available soon all right everybody we'll be back next week with another episode from ukraine talk to you then